Hello there, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Before I get into my next guest, I wanted to share the news that the show is now recommended by the United States Library of Congress for information in learning about film music. Pretty cool. So I want to give a little round of applause to all the composers that have appeared on the show to make that possible. My guest today is Sam Heft. Now, you might know Sam as one half of the extremely popular music duo, The Living Tombstone. And Sam and I talk a bit about that background, how he joined that band, that group, and what it's like being in a musical group like that. But the bigger piece that we talk about is Has Been Hotel, the new prime adult animated series. And when I say adult, I just mean for adults. Now, Sam co-wrote all of the songs for this musical series, along with his co-composer, co-songwriter, Andrew Underberg. There's about two songs per episode, each song really jumping around a ton between genres, given the different settings and different characters involved. Now, when Sam and I talked, only the first four episodes were out. As of now, I think the whole first season is out, and all of his songs, his and Andrew's, have been released. Now, you can find out more about Sam on his social media, his website, and of course, you can do the same for me. And yes, this means that I'm back from the break, and so interviews should be coming again, as normally and regularly scheduled. Now, sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? So good. It has been kind of wild seeing the reception to uh, the release of Has Been Hotel. It's been nuts. Yeah, I mean, as of right now, the first four episodes are out. I got lucky enough, my my screener contained the fifth, although the, the sixth just came through for me about an hour ago, so I haven't watched that yet. Ooh. I know. And I can't say anything. I'm I'm embargoed. So those first four episodes are out, and candidly, like this has been a hotel, hell of a bus, already insanely popular. There must have been a lot of expectation leading up to this release. Was that ever a a concern or a worry for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was in a lot of ways. I was kind of terrified for <laughs> for the release of the show, in that there is already such a big sort of fan content ecosystem a lot of people first of all expect characters to sound like they sound in their heads or their music to sound like you know a fan song about that character Mm. that they really care about and the idea that we had to go into this and like really blow people away when there is already such a saturation of content about these characters uh, was very intimidating how do you navigate or deal with that intimidation, the expectations, and come up with something that's going to meet those or, or exceed them? Part of that was I have now gone out and listened to some stuff, but at the time, 
I like very sort of strictly embargoed myself from consuming any of the fan content for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of them is like I didn't want anything to even like subliminally end up sure. in the show. And then there's also just the dimension of I was worried that they might color my sense of the characters where my sense of the characters was kind of like coming directly from Vivienne. And I didn't want any of my sense of who they were or the way that they would sing to be even a little bit kind of driven by the fan expectation of the character as opposed to the creator expectation of the character. And it is a very different way to to write music because, I mean, you really are, you're writing for an audience of one, mm -hmm. and that is its own version of intimidating because Viv is a very, I mean, I, I describe it almost like auteur animation. She has such a sense of these characters in this world that there is a really kind of particular sense of it needs to be just so, and I didn't want to end up missing the mark because of something I had heard someone else interpret about the character of Alistair or Nifty or so on. And so on that, what are some of those initial conversations you had with her to get an idea of what the songs are going to be like, but also because each song, I think, both has a plot development side of things, but also a character development side of things. And what are those conversations to make sure that you are on the right page for what she's looking for? One of the advantages I came into this with is that by the time I started work with Andrew on the songs for Has Been Hotel, I had already done probably 15 songs, maybe 20, for Hell of a Boss. And so I had been used to working with Viv. And I, beyond that, you know, like, because she is such a particular creator and really knows what she wants, I feel like I had a pretty long runway of figuring out, you know, when she says this, musically, this is what it translates to. When she says that, musically, that's what that translates to. And so I felt like I already kind of had the crash course. I already had the orientation. That was very helpful. But second, it really comes down to the fact that she is, unlike most creators, in other instances where I have had someone essentially commissioning me to write or co-write a song, generally the creator or the writer or the producer is not personally sort of musical themselves. They say, mm. you know what, you're the artist, you figure out how best to represent this. Whereas Viv, because she is such a voracious consumer of musicals and music in general, you know, she will often say, well, you know, this character's music style is like this. Sonically, it can live in this world. Plot-wise, you know, you can take a look at, at how this musical approaches like two characters having an argument. There's a lot of stuff which is sort of bubbling around in her head when she is envisioning what a musical sequence might be. Now, it doesn't get overly specific to the point where she's like, have the characters say this, have them sing this way, that kind of thing. But she's already coming to every concept mm -hmm. of a song with such a well-developed mood board that it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. And that's really important, particularly for working for animation, because even though animation takes an incredibly long time to produce, it's generally on a, a kind of short runway in terms of the writing and recording. 
And so we did not have a lot of time to like play around and say, hey, here are three different ideas for this song. I mean, we had to come in with kind of a fully baked demo a week or less from figuring out what the song was going to be. Is that kind of how quick the turnarounds are for these songs? Because I often talk with a lot of composers for film primarily where they could be doing a film score in a week. They could be doing a film score over two years. And it's just so across the board. But it, it sounds like with animation, especially when it's episodic, where each episode's going to have a set lead time. You're not creating everything six months in advance. What's the time frame for that? It's interesting. I think about this a lot where, you know, would it have been helpful to have more time? Maybe, but maybe not. Because I do think so many of the interesting choices we made, we made in part because the necessity of the timeline was like you had to commit to an idea and you had to commit to that idea hard immediately and not second guess yourself. So there was a lot of kind of flying by the seat of your pants and it was kind of a fun challenge and resulted in a lot of things that I think we may not have arrived at if we were just kind of spinning our gears over a longer period of time. In fact, I think had we had a longer period of time, the soundtrack may have ended up, I guess, a bit more conventional. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of the things that make it kind of offbeat come from the necessity of like, find an idea, that you like enough to commit to and commit to it immediately. And, and to give you a sense of that timeline too, we initially started with episode 205, and that was because there was someone very specific that we wanted to deliver those songs to, a performer who you know wanted to hear the songs in advance. And so we worked on those 205 songs, and those were done, I would say, in a hurry but not in that same level of like, okay, we got to do this now. And once we did those, we had a couple weeks to just kind of brainstorm. But once we really got into it, part of it, again, because animation takes so long, the idea is to get those actors scheduled as soon as possible, which also means get the scripts and songs ready as soon as possible. And outside of 205, I think our pace was close to two songs a week, which wow. was really kind of unprecedented for me creatively. I think it just it resulted in some some really, really cool stuff, because I, I just think like when you get to that point, you have to force yourself to be in this kind of creative flow state where it's not like, oh, I'll wait for inspiration to strike. It's like, no, I need to be an inspiration machine. It results in some really cool stuff. How do you put yourself in that mindset or put yourself in the mode of inspiration machine? You know, I think part of it is the stuff that tends to inspire me as a songwriter is a sound. My co-writer on our band, The Living Tombstone, Yoav Landau, he tends to start with a melody, which is something that I've never really been able to do. Like, he will walk around taking voice notes and just be like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And the song is fully baked in his head from the melody outwards. That is very much not my M.O. I tend to want to look for a sound or a style. And once I have 
some kind of vamp, like a chord structure, which is subject to change, a couple instruments and their sounds, which are also, of course, subject to change. But once I have something that feels like a vertical slice of a song, from there, I feel like I'm very good at extrapolating out what the rest of the song could be. Mm. And it's it's interesting you say that because the musical styles of each song sounds so distinct and obviously some of it's plot and character based but like you'll have uh songs especially when it'll be let's say half of it's one character and then another character comes in and each one's bringing their own musical style with it so is is that part of what's coming in from the that early inspiration of the stylistic idea and then things start flowing from it Absolutely. And, I, and I've said this a couple times that people have asked me to compare Has Been Hotel to like other cartoons. And obviously Has Been Hotel is very, very different in that like you so rarely see the synthesis of adult cartoon musical. Like those three things really rarely unite. And I think much in that same way, the music feels the same where it's, you know, there's these elements that are combining that normally never would. And it's because of the type of musical that has been is where it is really character driven music, not setting driven music. And I think most musicals have one consistent musical palette driven by the setting and has been is so different in that it is really the characters driving the style of the songs. And when two characters have very different styles styles, mm-hmm. it creates a song that is wholly unique in terms of its genre blend because, you know, you'll have a character that's kind of like circusy and a character that's like jazzy and then you'll have a character that is like steampunky and, and just the way that things will meld in that way is totally, totally different than virtually any musical that I'm familiar with. In fact, I've been thinking about if there's anything I could compare it to in terms of the way that the genres flip and change around. And actually, the closest comparison I can come up with is the Flight of the Concords TV show, where they would... Yeah, yeah, and even though it wasn't like character-based, because it's really just Brett and Jemaine, yeah, the way that they would jump from pastiche to pastiche to pastiche and play around with all these different styles, where you'd have an episode where there was kind of like a 90s hip-hop song, and then an episode where there was like an Elton John-style piano ballad. And I think to that end, that is the closest thing I would compare it to stylistically, in that it really does so jump around And that is more of a feature, I realize, of musical comedy than it is a feature of a musical. You know, Mm. you see it with uh, artists like uh, Bo Burnham as well, where there's a lot of stylistic changeover. But tonally, it is one project. And I think that is a more interesting comparison, is that that genre flexibility of musical comedy enters into this, which is still a traditional musical. In, in talking about this, the other thing that comes to mind looking at it from that perspective is Daniel Pemberton's score for Across the Spider-Verse, where... Totally! Obviously, so many other aspects completely different, but it has the same approach of jumping across genres in ways that you wouldn't expect and probably shouldn't work, and yet completely Absolutely. Works. 
that's a fantastic comparison because much in the way that the songs are so dominated by like where are we and who's singing that is so the case for Pemberton's score in that it's like which Spider-Verse are we in which Spider-Man are we following and as a different character may swing across screen all of a sudden their elements may enter into the score and so with that obviously one of the reasons I would assume you're not seeing that or hearing it, whether it be in adult animation, film, etc., is because it's difficult to do and difficult to strike the balance of it working and not simply sounding like you're in this musical pinball machine jumping from genre and it battering you. How are you striking that balance of like jumping across these genres, but doing it in a way that actually comes off as as seamless and not sort of jarring to the viewer or the listener. Well, I think part of it is that Andrew and I, Andrew Underberg, my my co-songwriter and I have very different influences to each other mm. whereas if we both kind of were painting with the same colors, I think it would be very very hard to pull this off. But I think generally I lean more into that kind of like pop rock kind of zone whereas andrew has this incredible incredible sensibility like you know one of the things that he did before working on has been quite a lot is k-pop and Mm. his ability to bring in sort of more electronic elements of production he and i also write songs completely differently i generally write on guitar which tends to be that more kind of like vamp chord progression focused songwriting whereas he generally writes on piano which tends to be like a little bit more nuanced but feels like it generates a very different kind of top line than guitar songwriting does and so you know he and i it's really our differences that allow us to sort of reach to those different places and it's also something that you don't see that often i think in making music for any sort of media typically it's one person writing it or depending if it's a larger studio one person at the top with multiple other co-writers but having like a composing duo is you know not as common so i mean what is your writing process together i mean and whether looking at it broadly or picking a random song from the show and, and sort of how that plays out sure well i mean i could just take a couple examples from the show sure. I think a lot of the time we do a lot of our work sort of simultaneously, which is actually different from a lot of the the songwriting partnerships that I've had in that when we are kind of playing with stuff simultaneously, we go, oh, yes, that. Oh, oh, here. Wait, that thing you just played on piano. That was great. What if we do that? Whereas a lot of the songwriting partnerships that I have generally to use the Living Tombstone as an example, where Yoav will come in and he will have this great melody and then he will sort of extrapolate that into sort of like an early demo that will pass to me. I will extrapolate that and pass it back to him. And it kind of goes back and forth like that. Whereas Andrew and I are really, and part of that, again, is the time crunch element, is that we don't really have this sense of like, well, I'll work on this, and then you work on this, and then I'll work on this, and then you work on this. It's really just like we are in a Zoom or in person together, and I am either playing a guitar or I'm tapping away on a MIDI keyboard, and he's usually in front of his much larger MIDI keyboard, and we just wait until we hear something that speaks to us, 
and mm. one of us stops the other and goes, ah, 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 wait, 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 that, that right there. Let's <laughs> let's just build that out a little more. That kind of simultaneous work. What's funny about it is it feels a lot more like how songwriting is depicted in TV and movies, but mm. it generally as a songwriter is not really how songwriting is usually done. I feel like so much of the time, group songwriting is one person having maybe a half-baked idea, but one person comes in with an idea and then two people refine it or two or more. Whereas this really is that kind of like simultaneous, oh, we're all finding it together at the same time type of songwriting. Does that, like an obvious parallel of that is, um, what what was the, the Beatles documentary from last year? Get oh, Back, yeah, Get Back, yeah. And of course, I can't remember the song, but there's the viral clip of... Uh, it, it It is Get Back is the song. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yes. And, you know, just playing it and like you watch in real time, like, oh, over the course of a minute, this this hit song just kind of pops out of the air and it, it sounds like there's a similarity there where you guys are playing experimenting musically brainstorming and then absolutely and i think one of the reasons that clip is so striking in get back is because it is not a dissimilar situation in that they need to in real time come up with this single whereas a lot of the songs that they're working on in get back is you know paul says oh i had this idea let me bring it in let me play it for you let me show you john goes oh i had this idea let me bring it in let me play it for you let me show you george says i had this idea let me bring it in let me play it for you and then everyone else says no we don't want it on the record george <laughs> it's there there is one of the things that makes that sequence so stunning is like you actually are seeing it from beginning to end as opposed to seeing it from like that kind of germ that's already been refined by one of the members of the band is that sort of songwriting experience something that you had had prior to working on these or or is this a bit new so i had but not in the context of this type of work there have been certainly some tracks with the living tombstone that have been written that way but uh something that also comes to mind is I had a, a comedy music band, which is really how I got my start as a songwriter, a comedy music band called Sam and Bill. And just out of necessity, like that is how we would write every single song. We would mm. just sit down in my, you know, hundred square foot studio apartment in New York. <laughs> and I would just like pull out my guitar and we would just have a general sense of, oh, here's a song about blah. And then we would just play with the guitar and improvise with each other until we hit on something that made us laugh. And then we would move on to the next section. Oh, interesting. And to take us on a little bit of a tangent then, how did you turn that initial project into what's obviously now a very successful career because obviously that's something that you know and there is not one right route or answer for everyone but it's obviously something that a lot of younger musicians composers sit down and look at and it's it is a daunting broadly the music industry the film industry tv etc are like daunting industries to break into Totally. And I, I mean, in high school, I was interested in it and kind of walked away from it to give you a little bit mm. of, of background here. And what's very interesting is there's a kind of full circle element to my background in music in that I first got interested in at the time we called it music tech, which was like, you know, digital audio workstations. My first interest in DAWs came as a freshman in high school. In high school, I was paired with like, you know, a big brother in, a, in like a mentorship program. And that big brother was Andrew Underberg, my 
co-writer on Has Been Hotel. And at the time, he had just gotten into it himself and introduced me to it, which was uh, at the time we were using, I think it was called Cakewalk, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but is by the same studio that now has Sibelius. Okay. Um, so we were using a, a software called Cakewalk Studio, which was like a very sort of rudimentary MIDI sequencer. And that was sort of my first introduction to that world. And I was completely fascinated by it. Um, and by the time I had graduated high school, I had started using Logic. I mean, a much earlier Logic than now exists. Yeah. But And I was applying to colleges, and I actually got into the Berkeley School of Music, and I didn't go. I was dating someone in high school who was going to a different school, and I was that's that's what I picked the school I was going to based on. And the program that I got into there was as a playwright, not as a as a songwriter or a composer. And so I didn't end up pursuing it for for a while, but I was part of a sort of sketch comedy group in Brooklyn, and through there. I started integrating music into the comedy side of my life. And that's what ended up getting me into, into music again. And with this duo act, Sam and Bill, we decided, oh, we wanted to put together an LP. And when we decided that, I realized I didn't know any music producers. So I reached out to Andrew. And Andrew actually produced our comedy music LP, which then did, I would say, medium well. <laughs> and through the course of it doing medium well, I met at a party Yoav, who had a few years earlier created The Living Tombstone. And, you know, he and I got along immediately. And because of how the comedy music was doing, I thought, oh, I need a, a studio space so that we can write more. And Yoav had just moved to New York and said, oh, I need a studio space so I can produce more. And we both went in on a studio space. And sharing a space together was what got Yoav and I working on music together. And then we started writing songs together for The Living Tombstone. And then he and I became sort of a, a duo as The Living Tombstone. And when I moved to L.A., and so did Yoav, he had a housewarming party. And at that housewarming party, he introduced me to Vivian Medrano, who created Hell of a Boss and Has Been Hotel. And he said, oh, you should talk to Sam about music because he does comedy music, and that's what you're looking for. And so huh. this Sam and Bill record ended up also being my, alongside Yoav, way into to Vivienne's world. And then when in Hell of a Boss, she said, hey, I need you to, to write a K-pop song. I said, oh, well, I actually know a guy who writes and produces for K-pop. And so I brought Andrew into that. And then through our work together on Hell of a Boss, she said, oh, why don't you guys do something on Has Been Hotel? And then eventually that became doing the whole show. So it was very, it was kind of a weird circle of Andrew introducing me to music, Andrew producing the comedy music record, the comedy music record leading me to having a studio with Yoav, working with Yoav, getting me to introduce to Viv, the comedy music coming back there and getting me work on Hell of a Boss and then eventually bringing it back to Andrew. I love it. It's always so funny hearing those stories of how kind of, labyrinthine and unexpected each of these steps can be. Totally. I like to say to people, like, I got into the music industry diagonally. I did not, <laughs> you know, it was not something that I was going for. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, was there ever a, a moment for you during that journey where 
you had a, a second guess or, you know, doubted, is this is this the right path? Very much, because, you know, simultaneous to a lot of this, really until until about 2019, music was a side job. That was so not my main thing. I was like, I'm a writer. Sometimes I write music, but I am a writer. And I think part of that was, you know, having gone to school to be a playwright, like I definitely thought like, okay, I am going to be a comedy screenwriter or television writer. And that is going to be like the thing I do. And I so identified myself with that. And I was taking projects out and pitching them. And in 2018, I put basically my entire life savings into a pilot, which got very well received. But because I also spent the year working on that pilot, and at that time, I had been supporting myself with like voiceover work. And because I spent the year working on that pilot and like not going out and doing other kinds of work, I stopped making money for, you know, my managers and agents. And so at the end of the year, even though things were going so well with this pilot and like we were getting really great pitches at places like HBO, basically my whole team dropped me in the span of like, I want to say like four months wow. where first it was my literary agent where it was like, ah, you know, I just I don't think the needle's really moving on this project that you've committed your entire life to right now. And then my manager got, you know, one of the clients of this manager just absolutely blew up and became super, super huge and just didn't have time to work for anyone else anymore. And so I was left like basically without a team. And at the time, my wife had just become pregnant and I was like terrified. And uh, Yoav and I had a long conversation. And at the end of it, it was like, OK, like I am. I am a musician now. Like this is th this is what I'm going to dedicate my everything to. And so I did. And like Yoav and I, to his credit, he was really open to that at a time that it was so important that he be open to that because I, you know, also like didn't know how I was going to feed my family. I mean, and as a result of that, I mean, we the the way that we have built up the Living Tombstone together has been amazing. Like, I feel like we have taken something that he created and just, like, blown it up completely. And it's it feels so cool to be doing this with also just someone that I'm so close to and someone who is, you know, like a brother to me. It was a really sort of meaningful turning point. And without that, I don't think I would, I mean, without that, I know for sure I would not be here. I would still be, you know, throwing projects against the wall in pitch meetings. It's also got to feel surreal talking about that sort of low point and then looking at like the Living Tombstone, for instance, which obviously from a, a listener size is huge. I mean, you guys just had a song in Five Nights at Freddy's, for instance, like, yeah, the trajectory of that's unreal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is it is wild. And I think part of it is it's kind of easy to live in denial of the kind of impact it has because it's all through a screen. Um, but we did sort of a mini SoCal tour over this past October, like around Halloween. And that it's the going out and doing conventions and doing shows like that's when it really hits you that like this means a lot to a lot of people. It's very easy to not take that in. And I think there are ways in which like taking that in feels kind of like mentally unhealthy in some ways in that, you know, I was just having a conversation about this where the more 
you belong to them, the mm. less you belong to you. And that is a very, it makes me anxious sometimes because it feels very, it feels very exposed. This idea of what it is to create something that matters to enough people that that like you are the, the the idea of being like a public figure is very sort of scary to me mentally uh and i think i kind of appreciate the fact that like we're not a traditional like rock band where we're going out and we're going in front of these huge crowds uh, all the time and i don't have to take in that thought very much because it is all it's all like through a screen. It's all digital for the most part. But it is like there are ways in which, you know, going out on stage in front of a lot of people feels amazing. But there are ways in which it's kind of scary. It's like, oh, my gosh, like it's I don't want to have a profound effect on all these people's happiness. I don't want to be the reason that you could be happy or sad or or all of that stuff. And And I think there is something very intimidating about it that I have not quite processed yet. But it sounds like, too, having a lot of responsibility, knowing that if, like, you're playing a show and everything goes right, you can bring all this happiness. But also, if something goes wrong, it's going to be deflating, and then you'll have however many people who are like, the living tombstone screwed us. Exactly. I mean, you know, we had, in that little mini tour, we had our last show of the tour. There was an issue with, like, the soundboard and our in-ear monitors died like the moment oh, we got geez. out on stage. It was just all this stuff. And I remember feeling just so angry at myself, even though I knew that there was nothing I could have done. Like, I was just so, so upset because I just saw these people and I was I, I, I just wanted them to have the best possible time and in the end like we we righted the ship and i think it, it's funny i don't i don't even know that much of the crowd even got a sense that something was wrong but i felt so angry at myself because i feel like there is a responsibility of some of you traveled to get here you yeah. paid for a ticket you waited in line and it's so important to curate something really positive for you it also sounds similar to what you were describing near the beginning of this, where so much of the ecosystem around has been had been fan created. And, and so it, it's kind of like this self-created fan ownership of the show of the music. And you're then kind of in a similar position of making sure there's something that's going to, to meet expectations as well, obviously without copying just what the fans have done. Yeah, yeah. And and I think thankfully like with the Living Tombstone, it's not really a situation where a lot of people are making like the Living Tombstone fan music because we are a music yeah. act. So, it thankfully we don't need to deal with those types of expectations, but there have certainly been times in the band where we've released a song and then after releasing the song realized, you know what? Maybe this was a little out of the box for us, which mm. is surprising because I feel like the Living Tombstone, there is such a big box over the kinds of styles of music that we can make. But there are some things that are a little left field. And I think, you know, every once in a while we'll stumble upon something where we'll say, you know what, maybe that was too different. And so there are expectations in terms of that. 
But I don't think they're quite as significant as the expectations around the has-been fandom, in part because they have had, you know, four years between yeah. the pilot and season one in which they have made, I mean, maybe hundreds of songs. And a lot of the fan songs build off other fan songs. So there are ways in which it's kind of like the Star Wars extended universe or expanded universe. I, I don't remember if it's extended or expanded, but there is sort of a fan version of each of these characters that is an extrapolation of a combination of the pilot in 2019 and the fan content that has come after. And what's interesting is, you know, like the pilot to episode one is not one to one. You know, episode one of Has Been Hotel draws a lot from the pilot, but not everything. There are things that are changed. There are things that are tweaked. And the fan base has been running for four years on yeah. one version of these characters and versions of these characters that they have further extrapolated and made three dimensional in the ways that they feel are three dimensional, not in the ways that Viv feels are the three-dimensionality of these characters. And not to say that those things are so different, but with some characters, occasionally it is. Because the pilot doesn't have speaking roles or singing roles for every single character shown in the pilot. So I remember seeing a lot of people very surprised by how Vox or Valentino or Velvet sounds. There are characters where what they had to go on on the pilot, plus what all the fan content around the character was, led to a very different sense of what that character is than what ended up being that character in the show. And so there are ways in which I knew that people would be surprised. And the goal on our end was just to make sure it was a positive surprise. And I creeped on your Twitter before this to get a, a sort of sense of what your responses were. And it, it seems like you've been very active and sort of broadly interacting with the fan base. I watched, a, I don't know, it's about an 80 second clip of all the different language <laughs> versions of, yes. of Adam's guitar solo. And so look, maybe you have a different take on it, but I think from the outside observer, and at least with those interactions, that it's been a a positive experience and one that's been positive enough for you to feel comfortable wading into and, and actively interacting with. Absolutely. And, you know, I think as with any fan base, there are people who are like, man, this isn't the version of this that I expected or yeah. the version of this that I wanted. But like at the end of the day, you know, the fan base at large has just been so warm and so just excited to be getting this show that they've been anticipating for four years, which is, I mean, and especially because some of the fans are like in their late teens, early 20s. For a lot of people, like this has been a good chunk of their life that they have been waiting for Has Been Hotel to come out. And with all the burden of that expectation, people have, have been like remarkably positive and people have been like really, really nice to me, which is great. I like <laughs> when people are nice to me. To tie back to that idea of like what it is to be a, a public figure, too, there are elements, too, that I've seen of like there are ways in which you kind of become a character to people. And I think that is one of the things that that keeps me interacting because I mm. do like I want people to have a sense of who I am as a person, because it feels like when you care about something so much, there's a tendency to look at the people who make 
that thing and to sort of fill in the blanks that you don't know about them or you don't understand about them and kind of make them a character in your head. I've seen people doing that about about Viv, about me, about all people in the crew, about people in the cast. And part of it is, I think, engaging myself is also an opportunity to let people know like, hey, I'm a guy, I'm a real, <laughs> I'm a real person. And we can have fun together, but I think an element of it is just like, to an extent, like keeping a hand on the wheel of what all these people like think Sam Haft is. I kind of want to go off of that fan base into a slight tangent as we wind down. But this idea was, I think, really brought to the forefront with the Mean Girls movie that just came out, where there's been a rash of articles about studios hiding the reality that the movies they're releasing are musicals. And then you hear about the has-been fan base, You hearing you talk about how many songs they've created, the popularity of the EP that you just released, the two singles you'd released before that, and... I just wanted to see, like, how do you square these two things? Can you? I think part of it is studios are trying so hard to hit that, like, four-quadrant broad appeal. Mm -hmm. And I think it may be that if you were to poll the general public of everybody and say, do you love musicals or are you not that interested in musicals? It could be that more of the general public is disinterested in musicals than interested in musicals. But at the same time, the piece of the public that is interested in musicals is going to love your musical if it's good. So I think instead of trying to appeal to, you know, the 55 to 60 percent of the broader population that's not that interested in a musical, hit the people who are into it, because the people who are into it are going to love it if you put your heart into it. And I think part of that, too, is like the 55 to 60 percent who are disinterested in a musical are going to feel lied to the moment they sit down Mm -hmm. and see it is one. So I think, you know, in trying to get the ticket sales from the people who are disinterested in a musical, why not get all the people who are interested in the musical to say, oh my God, I love this movie. And that positive word of mouth can bring the other people in, as opposed to trying to get those people who are disinterested in a musical. And then you end up getting a negative word of mouth because all these people are showing up who who are not already sold by the premise of what this is. Yeah, and then and then you have immediately killed the momentum. I mean, and look, I'll, I'll say I wouldn't ever say I'm a musical person, and yet I'm enjoying Has Been. I watch The Nightmare Before Christmas every single year. Like, I think the word of mouth and, and having people kind of be able to decide for themselves is, is the music in here something that I like, something that will resonate with me, and, and same with the, the film or the show. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the marketing of a movie, there's plenty of stuff that gets concealed in the marketing of a movie. But you do not want the medium of the movie to be a twist. You can conceal bits of story and bits of character and, like, plot twists. But the entire format of the movie to be a twist, especially if you are making that decision because you know and you have focus grouped that... People don't want a musical. Then what? You know, it it just it seems so so counterproductive and such a misfire. And, and I think people are realizing this more on the marketing side. And I just I don't know if everyone's caught up to this, but it is so important to have your 
sort of niche and your subgroup and your super fans, those people drive everything else. Yeah. And I think if every movie costs $200 million, every movie needs to make a billion dollars. And that's a problem. And I think if if you're in a situation where, you know, the budget for your movie is so high that everyone needs a ticket, you shouldn't be making a musical in the first place because you know that a lot of people don't want that. So I do think it ties into the sort of grander budget ballooning of the movie industry in that, like, you need a four quadrant movie if you are going to make a certain amount of money, which I also don't know is true. I mean, you take a film like Get Out, which... Like horror is there are obviously there's a very big fan base for horror, but it is a niche. It yeah. is a niche with just a ton of super fans. And that drove that movie to be one of the biggest of the year. And so I just think you have to appeal to the people who are going to love it first. And if you ignore those people and and don't try to get them at all, then you're going to end up with a lot of your audience who's just like watching it through happenstance, not being the people who you know are going to love it. One pushback I'll say is it sounds like you're you're challenging James Cameron to make a, an Avatar film that's a musical and somehow make $2 billion. Uh, you know, I... <laughs> Call me, Jim. Let's make some Navi tunes. Hey, I'd I'd be right right in the front of the line for that. Um, but hey, Sam, I I appreciate you sitting down chatting with me. I've I've been enjoying the show. Looking forward to the next three episodes, and I'm sure. Uh, I mean, people seem to be eating it up. So I'm I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, anticipated folks waiting for those those next episodes. The rest of the songs to come out. Of course. Thank you so so much for having me. And thank you. <laughs>